Hello, and welcome back to Techie Case Podcast. In this episode, we will be exploring the technologies that will underpin the creation of the metaverse. The metaverse, a virtual world in which we experience the life of our digital twin, may soon be a reality for some UK businesses and consumers. However, this promise of the metaverse is going to be built on a foundation of many technologies, including communications networks and data infrastructure, cloud and edge computing, and distributed ledgers in artificial intelligence, and of course, ARVR as well. It is these technologies working together that will enable the first versions of the metaverse to emerge. Now, in this podcast, you will hear from a number of different speakers exploring these different technologies. These clips were initially recorded as part of a mini-series on the Tech UK website, designed for on-the-go listening and to be digestible information about the many different technologies that will underpin the metaverse. Now, they were recorded with this podcast in mind, but if the speakers do refer occasionally to a presentation slide, don't worry, you can find this information on the Tech UK website. And of course, this work is part of a wider Tech UK campaign called Making the Metaverse, in which we are exploring how the metaverse will be made in collaboration with the UK tech sector and the different industries that the metaverse may one day revolutionise as well. If you have any questions about this work, please do not hesitate to reach out. Otherwise, let's get started with the podcast. Hello, um, and welcome to this uh, Tech UK uh, webinar and podcast on connectivity for the metaverse or metaverse technologies. I am Dean Bubbly. Uh, I'm an industry analyst and advisor uh, on various technology domains. Uh, I'm going to be talking for about, I guess, probably about 10 or 15 minutes about some of the connectivity aspects of metaverse, whether that's wireless or fixed connections, and also what's going on in the background. Um, I am also have a, a, an alter ego on uh, social media of uh, Disruptive Dean, uh, and I've been doing sort of particularly telecoms and networking uh, research and strategy consulting um, since the, the early 1990s. Uh, and these days, I spend a lot of time looking at 5G, 6G, Wi-Fi technologies, fiber uh, networks, uh, edge computing and, and cloud and so on, and the applications of those, whether that's in uh, ordinary business and consumer marketplaces, but also for Internet of Things and, as today, uh, metaverse-type technologies and services. Um, my general biases are to criticise uh, what I'll call lazy incumbency and hype. Um, so I, I do occasionally uh, puncture a few um, uh, industry um, uh, hype bubbles, let's say. And uh, perhaps I'll go through a couple of those uh, over the next uh, few slides. Uh, and I'm, I'm conscious as well that some people will be listening to this on an audio-only podcast, whilst others will be able to see the uh, slides that I'm putting up as a presentation. Um, it might help if you're in audio-only to sort of try and download the deck from uh, the Tech UK website, uh, but if not, I'll try to keep it uh, as uh, accessible to audio-only users as well. So the first thing um, to discuss about metaverse connectivity um, is 
There are many different bits of network and connection involved in creating overall applications, experiences, uh, and sort of future you know, virtual world environments, whether that's on a, a dedicated device for the user, like a headset or next-gen glasses, or whether you're using a, a more traditional um, smartphone or laptop or, or some other screen um, to consume a virtual environment. Uh, I'll also say that my, my general belief at the moment is that there won't be one singular capital M metaverse, but actually lots of separate lowercase m metaverse types, whether that's for consumers like games or virtual worlds, businesses, which could be everything from collaboration and conferencing through to digital twins for manufacturing or, or even smart cities as a, as a twin. Um, I, I think we'll see some interconnection between those virtual worlds, but a lot of them will be standalone and isolated. Uh, and I realize that uh, that's not necessarily a mainstream view, but it's it's one that, that my understanding of the evolution of, of web technologies and applications as well uh, suggests to me that that's most likely trajectory. So what we're going to see um, for connectivity aspects is different parts of the, like, the chain of, of device, cloud, and application. A lot of the focus, and I'll talk about a fair bit as well, will go on what's called the access part of the network, from your device, your, your phone, or your glasses, or your headset, to whatever the local network access point is. It could be a mobile cell tower, it could be a Wi-Fi access point, it could be the other end of a USB cable, to be honest. Um, and that access uh, technology, often it gets the lion's share of attention when people talk about networks. But from my mind, that's only part, and arguably just a small part, of the overall uh, metaverse connectivity landscape. Um, that connection will, will probably go via you know, some sort of broadband connection, um, and there will likely, for a lot of metaverse uh, applications, be some sort of edge compute node, whether that's for graphics processing, or control form of, of local control, of delivery of the application function. Um, and, and there's different types of edge I'll talk later on. That will then you know, go further back in the network towards some sort of network interconnection point. And I think interconnect doesn't get talked about enough. Either this could be between different uh, service provider networks. For example, if one person is playing a game on a particular mobile network and their friend or their, their group of friends are on other networks, which could be locally or they could be uh, internationally, there will need to be some sort of interconnection or peering. But also, the chances are that each metaverse environment will use lots of third-party bits of software. They will be inherently multi-cloud applications where you might have you know, AI engines in one place, graphics from another, um, payment functions in a third place, um, data storage, all these things <clears throat> may come from completely separate providers on separate clouds. Maybe you want redundancy in some cases. Uh, and the interconnect functions, whether that's an internet exchange point or a peering point or an a, a, a industry-specific interconnect, for example, in the mobile industry, those will be really important to a lot of metaverse experiences. There will be very few that, um, of, of applications, metaverse applications, which reside just on one network. Um, and you have to think, you know, from a latency point of view and a performance point of view, where do all the various bits, whether it's the access networks or the cloud aspects, where do they come together and touch each other? 
And the last bit is, is inside the cloud, there is a lot of backbone traffic that will be needed, even where you've got the larger part of uh, a virtual world that may be running on um, uh, uh, Meta's backend or maybe Google's or perhaps even a, I'm not, not, not a big, I'm not very convinced by some of the Web3 and decentralization discussions here, but you could may well have that type of view of the world as well, or it could be AWS. You might find that you know, five times or 10 times more traffic is um, transmitted and connected inside the cloud between the different data centers um, than has actually hit the access network. Uh, and that's perhaps going to be a major driver of overall latency, and especially if your metaverse is international and you have to think about the connectivity across oceans, maybe in some cases via space, um, often via inconvenient pathways uh, as well. So it's not even like the, the, the length that the surface of the Earth would suggest that you have to think about the speed of light for. Uh, and so obviously we'll, we'll often talk about millisecond this or 10 millisecond latency. Uh, unfortunately, um, the speed of light may be a constraint for some of this. But let's talk more about the access network and how devices for, for Metaverse connect to the network. This is a, an important area because when I started thinking about metaverse connectivity, I realized that the majority, not all, but a lot of metaverse use cases will be used indoors. They will be business events and collaborations and conferences. They will be games. There will be social networks. Uh, it could be fitness uh, scenarios. Not all of these, but a lot are done in living room, perhaps in a bedroom, perhaps in an office meeting space, perhaps in a conference room. From a physical point of view, you will be sitting on your sofa with either a screen in front of you or perhaps um, uh, a headset or glasses on. Now, there will certainly be outdoor metaverse use cases as well. So it could be you know, public safety and uh, um, a, a paramedic getting um, you know, uh, real-time advice from a consultant or specialist at the scene of an accident. It might be some sort of find your friends app or outdoor game, you know, similar to sort of an involved version of, of Pokemon, if you like. Um, you might have uh, you know, virtual displays of art as you walk down the street. But in my view, that's probably the 20% rather than the 80%. It may be 30, 70 over time. We'll see how it emerges. But particularly given that a lot of um, uh, early metaverse applications are, say, coming emerging from the gaming space, you have got to expect an awful lot to be done in a residential environment or perhaps in sort of quasi-indoor settings like on a bus or on a train, which to, to a degree are similar. And a really important thing here is, when you're, you might be wondering why I'm talking about indoors and outdoors, is that wireless signals do not go well through walls. And the higher performance they are, they tend to use higher frequencies, um, they go through the wall even worse. Uh, and if you've got in the future, and we're looking here at maybe 10, 15 years time, if you've got lots of insulation in your house and you've got windows which have um, uh, foil coating to, to stop heat going in and out, it basically turns your house into what's called a Faraday cage, which almost makes it completely opaque to wireless signals. So this isn't just an issue for Metaverse. It'll be important for anything involving, let's say, 5G applications. I, I, and, and one of the big challenges I see over the next 10 years is how do you get 5G working indoors, or even Wi-Fi inside the house to cover every part of the house, all the rooms, the basement. Maybe you've got a staircase or in an apartment block, you've got, a, you've got an elevator shaft. Those are places people will perhaps want to have 
um, uh, access to virtual worlds. You, you know, to use an extreme example, imagine an elevator engineer in the lift shaft of a tall building surrounded by concrete. Uh, clearly, they've got a safety critical job to do. The chances of them getting wireless connection from outside is essentially zero. And so I think that this has a really important implication for metaverse connectivity, in my view, which is that Wi-Fi, rather than um, 5G mobile or 6G uh, after 2030, will be the core to indoor metaverse connectivity. Wi-Fi is generally designed and deployed for indoor use, whereas cellular, it very much depends on the building owner, the willingness of a given carrier, carriers, plural, to provide indoor connectivity in a particular building. And they, they typically will start with popular places like sports stadiums and airports and shopping malls. And the average mid-sized office or a hotel is unlikely to get a dedicated indoor system for 5G, but it will have a dedicated Wi-Fi network. And your house almost certainly will have a dedicated Wi-Fi network, which will improve in importance and in capability over the years. I'm not going to go through all the generations of Wi-Fi. Um, the current one in most new devices is called Wi-Fi 6. There's a new one just starting to come out called Wi-Fi 6E, which uses a new and cleaner spectrum band, which gives more capacity and reliability. And then from about 2023, 2024, you'll start hearing about Wi-Fi 7, which has got uh, more capabilities around um, both performance and speed and latency, but also ways to actually guarantee uh, more devices and users in a given area. Um, and perhaps better mobility and various other capabilities as well. I mean, there's going to be an ongoing Wi-Fi trajectory over the next you know, decade or more as Metaverse starts to appear. So I would say that, that for whole home connectivity and also in a lot of office spaces and some industrial spaces, Metaverses will primarily be Wi-Fi primary. They might you then link to something else, and obviously your house will be linked to fiber or cable or, or perhaps 5G um, for broadband. Um, but the, the first most important uh, set of, of, of technologies are Wi-Fi, or, or as I mentioned earlier, perhaps a USB cable, um, not even wireless. 5G uh, is a really important technology, and then 6G will be when it starts coming in around 2030. The key thing to think about with 5G is that it comes in phases. What we have today in most of the world is what you can almost like call it 5G phase one, where it's almost 4G plus plus. Gives much better speeds in some cases. It's really good for things like fixed wireless access compared to the um, technologies in the past for wireless. It's mostly used on smartphones, um, and you're starting to see some industrial use case for things like cameras and so on. When people talk about 5G, they will often talk. Um, about features and capabilities like millisecond latency and ultra reliability, um, things like there's a, a thing called network slicing that allows virtual networks to be constructed. All of those really are dependent on the second or third, if you like, or you can call them releases, the technology term is releases of 5G, um, that really are only starting now and will emerge properly over the next three to five years. Um, and often they don't, all of those capabilities don't all work in the same place at the same time. And some will need very carefully engineered, whether it's an indoor network or an industrial zone or something like that, to give you, if you like, the full features that 5G is promising. You shouldn't expect millimeter, uh, sorry, millisecond latency to work absolutely everywhere, indoor and outdoor, on all devices, anytime soon, if ever. Um, and I think 5G is going to be really important for metaverse 
for uh for particularly for outdoor use cases maybe a head-up display in a vehicle the type of vision of people walking down a street with uh, glasses um you know, perhaps sharing information or virtual displays of art anything which is a, a sort of a mass game event perhaps could be a sports stadium where you know you've got an additional controller you can see uh, sort of controls for for a virtual character on the pitch or you, know, you, you leave it up to the application developers to think of good stuff here but the thing to think about is is where is this going to be used as well as what device and what what network connectivity it has um and so i do think that 5g is going to be important um but you know it's probably uh, it's very if you see anything which says yeah, the metaverse is a killer application for 5G. Uh, it's wrong, in my view. Um, this is a complex slide, which probably is difficult to convey for the audio version of the podcast. Um, it's looking at different bits of edge computing and uh, cloud computing. And what I'm expecting to see is a distribution of compute resource across all of these bits of network, whether it's on the device itself, whether that's a, a headset or a phone, whether there's some sort of local gateway or controller in your house, it could be a set-top box, it could be a, a PC, in a business environment, it could be a controller for five or 10 headsets or, or that is taking in input from cameras or LiDAR sensors or something like that. You may well have um, a more traditional edge compute stack um, on a premise, particularly in a business or industrial site, you might have a a full sort of rack of of compute on the on the side, or even just a, a couple of a couple of individual servers. Um, various bits of the network, people are talking about edge compute um, at a, either a five G cell site or an ag aggregation point, or in the fixed network at some sort of central office. You'll see um, small. Uh, metropolitan level data centers, you know, perhaps in a, in a small tier two or tier three city, or maybe in a port or an airport or industrial park or business park. Um, you know, it, it might not be a shipping container full of servers, but that's a good way can, to conceptualize what that sort of metro um, level compute is going to look like. And then you'll have hyperscale data centers, you know, the type of big out of town, perhaps even remote data centers with hundreds of megawatts or gigawatts of power that will store a lot of data and do a lot of compute. And each of those um, uh, compute domains, physical domains, will be capable of, of doing more or less uh, intensive computation, whether that's for graphics or the actual physics of a real world or reconciling where everyone and everyone and everything is, they will have different amounts of storage. Importantly, they'll have different latency times between the end user device and that particular compute platform. And for some things, ultra low latency is really, really important. But for others, you know, persistent storage or you know, the records of who owns what in a virtual world, you don't need milliseconds for that. You know, frankly, tens, hundreds, even milliseconds, even seconds might be good enough to sort of register the change in ownership of property of something. They also will have very different um, abilities to do this interconnection function I talked about earlier. Are they good just for connectivity and compute on that individual network, or do they branch out to other networks, to other clouds? Um, and you, what I expect to see here is, um, a, a clustering of metaverse, if you like, intelligence around the most interconnected points of the network. And that could be physically close to an internet, major internet exchange or peering point. Uh, it could be bilateral or multilateral between individual clouds. It could be on a, even on a premise where there is some sort of neutral uh, breakout point. But that's something I think is really going to affect how the architecture of metaverse connectivity uh, is created.
I'm going to move on. People want to sort of drill more into this sort of continu distributed continuum of compute and how that relates to uh, networking. Uh, by all means, co uh, contact me uh, offline, off, uh, apart from off, off of this uh, podcast and, and webinar. So last slide, um, I do a lot of work with uh, telecom operators and other classes of service provider, everything on from a, a tower company to even a metropolitan authority that's building its own citywide network for Internet of Things and so on. There's a lot of different what are called CSPs, communication service providers. There's the classical mobile operators, it's cable companies, satellite providers, and there's this whole slew of new service provider types that are either building fiber, building wireless networks, uh, and I think that's a really exciting uh, topic for another discussion. Um, I, I think that there are going to be important roles for service providers in order. Clearly, broadband to the property, whether it's a, a home or place of business, is going to be hugely important and you know fiber is certainly going to be ideal for a lot of um, homes and business premises to support metaverse applications as well as everything else that they're doing from a mobile point of view if you are out and about or you're in a vehicle then clearly 5g mobile service providers are going to have a uh, important role to play turning into 6g uh, in, a, in eight to ten years time i would expect but the, the other thing to think here is who is going to be owning, deploying, specifying that all-important indoor wireless capability, whether that's um, your home Wi-Fi or perhaps it's uh, small cells uh, indoor and an indoor dedicated system for 5G or 6G. Who puts that in? Is it um, your operator, your home ISP that sends you a box or, or maybe a mesh network with multiple nodes in your home? For an indoor property, um, it could be a, a what's called a third party, a neutral host that puts really good wireless connectivity inside your building. There's a, another set of providers that are looking for good connections in trains and buses. Trains are really challenging. If you think of someone on a one hour train ride deciding to play a metaverse game and there's a thousand people on that train uh, and they're all perhaps consuming hundreds of megabits a second if it's, if it's graphically rich and immersive. Uh, you have to really engineer the networks well uh, to support what essentially is a moving town of people needing connectivity uh, on their devices simultaneously. So there's going to be specialists in all of those areas. Uh, and to some extent, this is going to be a little bit contingent on what type of metaverse we're talking about here. Is it some sort of public overlay on the public internet where you've maybe got uh, annotations floating in, in 3D space in your vision uh, uh, you know, over maybe over, over someone's head or over an object either? giving you information or uh, allowing you to play a game with them or a business interaction, their, their uh, contact details, for example. Um, or is it more things like an industrial metaverse where perhaps you're fixing a jet engine in a hangar on an airport and you need expert instruction from the manufacturer on what to do and, and how, how, to, how to sort of perform that safely and then record the result afterwards. All of those will have very different traffic profiles. And I think there's going to be a really interesting set of um, skills and tools needed for creating the right network for the right metaverse application. One thing I think which will be common to all of these is the need for a lot of uplink, upstream capacity, whether that's um, uh, from a camera, from a sensor like LiDAR, whether it's motion sensors, which way is your head tilting, and so on. Uh, and some of that is going to be provided based on private connectivity by if it's an enterprise or a building owner. But often the service providers involved, whether they're home residential service providers or mobile, um, will have to think about how they manage that uplink traffic as well as downlink. And that may well have very different characteristics in terms of how they design their next generation of networks. 
coming back to this theme of communicate uh, communications interconnect i think that a really important imperative for service providers is to think carefully about breakout interconnect peering you know if i'm playing a game on one mobile operator and my friend has a different mobile carrier where did the, the where does the gameplay of me versus them touch each other is it a long way back in the network adding latency or is there a, some sort of regional interconnect in my town uh, or in my in, in my villages um, I think that's a really overlooked part of the overall space. I think that there's a big move towards having really fast and and close cloud on ramps and multi-cloud on ramps. I, I think a lot of metaverse applications will not be resident just on one provider's cloud, but they will have components on lots of different um, hyperscale or specialized clouds with different uh, software elements, perhaps provided um, you know, as, as add-ins, um, as peering and so on. And then in terms of if you're a traditional telco listening to this, uh, a, a BT or an AT&T or a Vodafone, where, where, where are you going to be able to play a role in this? Well, I think residential broadband, and this is a, a really good case for upgrading people to fiber and perhaps also 5G, 6G with um, maybe not specific plans, but you'll need a lot of data for this. I think that the indoor connectivity is something which is overlooked and, and is a huge set of opportunities uh, and will need feet on the ground in some cases. I think the edge and cloud connectivity piece, particularly the local breakout, is really, really key here. And then there's a, a bunch of other things which I haven't talked about around identity and SIMs, other mechanisms for authentication and security. Uh, I'm not a security specialist, and so uh, there's undoubtedly going to be a whole set of new security challenges that are both software-related and network-related, uh, but I'll, I'll skip those over. The other side to it, I think, is going to be um, in this aspect of, of uh, enhancing Wi-Fi networks and indoor 5G and 6G. Um, and I think that there's going to be a big push for um, a new spectrum for both of those technologies. There's a lot of uh, uh, wrangling at the moment. Uh, but overall, I think that there will be some opportunities for service providers, but they need to be realistic um, about what their role is and what the cloud providers and the content providers and, and applications. Um, someone on the some people on the list may, may be surprised on the call may be surprised I don't mention decentralized networks. Uh, I'll be honest, I'm a skeptic. Um, I, I heard terms like DY for decentralized wireless, and I think that it is um, at best wishful thinking and uh, at worst a great way of selling small cells which no one's ever ever going to use. But uh, that's perhaps a discussion for another time as well. So for now, I'll wrap up. That was my view of connectivity in the metaverse uh, or metaverses plural. Um, and I think that uh, if, you, if there's two takeaways, one is think about indoor and outdoor usage separately, uh, and the other is think about it. Thank you. And if you want to get in touch with me, um, you can either drop me a message on LinkedIn or via email uh, or via Twitter. I'm Disruptive Dean again. I use LinkedIn a lot. Thank you. My name is Jamie Allen. I'm the head of media, entertainment, and broadcast at NVIDIA's enterprise organization in EMEA. I'm really excited to be here today and talk about the uh, future requirements for computing infrastructure and network infrastructure to deliver all the different visions that people have today of, of what the metaverse or metaverse platforms will or, or could be. Um, I think that the the compute infrastructure is is a major topic um, that that we are trying to help address, along with many others in in the computing industry. Today we have an amazing uh, 
uh, infrastructure worldwide that allows people to connect in ways that even a few years ago we weren't expecting to needing to to do. You know the 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 impact of of recent world events um, around things like COVID have pushed us to improve the visual uh, connectivity between humans all around the world. Um, and this has led to an improvement in, in the software stacks of a number of major organizations to allow this to be achieved in, in a better way. Um, but as well as things like video conferencing improving, we've also seen improvements in the world of you know, remote connectivity to high-powered systems. You know, many industries now have moved to remote working and enabling their uh, users and their staff worldwide to connect to systems in ways that they, they didn't really think they would need to do a few years ago. Um, and this has shown us some of the, you know, uh, the building blocks that might be needed for, for some of the industrial use cases for, for the metaverse networking. Um, I, I'd say, say that from a consumer point of view, we have had platforms for many years now that have enabled mass multiplayer online gaming, right? We go back to, you know, StarCraft and World of Warcraft. We've been creating these immersive worlds for, for many years, allowing thousands, if not millions of people to, to interact on the same platforms, um, which is great. And this has shown that it's capable, that, that we, we have the, the computing powers and, and, and technologies to enable what people have wanted so far. The next generation of, of the internet and these, these systems and interconnected platforms for, for virtual worlds will require more complexity than what we've needed in, in this gaming space though. Um, for NVIDIA, we, we see metaverse or metaverses as, as these huge interconnected virtual worlds that could be you know, driving um, operational digital twins of, of factories, of power plants or entire cities, or in fact, the entire world, you know, the work we're doing with, with the Earth2 project. And in order to realize some of these uh, potential use cases, the, the computing infrastructure needed will, will be different to what we've been building these consumer interactive experiences on so far. Um, the ability to compute massive amounts of data in real time and display that to many people in, in, a, in a virtual twin of, of the, the real world. Um, requires new ways of, of computing uh, data with AI and machine learning and interjecting that into a visualization pipeline that can be scaled across many systems. Um, and, and this requires new types of scalable infrastructure and it requires that infrastructure to be deployed in many different places. Um, and we're, we're seeing, you know, lots of organizations who have been traditionally in some of these spaces such as cloud gaming now pivoting to try and address these these questions and these problems um which is really exciting because you know the the use cases are incredibly broad for for what we're seeing in in multiple industries from manufacturing and healthcare industrial and and media in order to build these massive interconnected collaborative virtual worlds and, and yeah, in, in order to get there, many organizations will need to come together and, and contribute to, to how this infrastructure will work from a hardware and a software point of view. Um, you know, the, 
a, a consumer or a a real time interactive level, you know, the a lot of this content will need to be processed closer to the users, and and we've seen this um, being you know coming up with the the deployment and rollout of 5G networks around the world, we've seen many broadcasters and, and network operators start to experiment with delivering XR experiences to, um, to users via mobile devices and VR headsets by deploying higher powered computing in their, their mech networks, at their edge computing um, sites. Um, and again, this requires the the migration away from delivering just 2D content to delivering full 3D interactive content um, in ways that we haven't really needed to before. Um, but the success of some of these initial POC is certainly like we've seen in the UK with the 5G Edge XR projects um, and you know the work being done at places like uh, Coventry University on a on a campus scale. Um, is really indicative of, of how this infrastructure will get built out from, from the edge. Um, and this then moves all the way back into you know, core telecommunication networks and core CDN networks to be able to um, provide platforms for organizations to, to host their uh, metaverse experiences, their operational digital twins and, and you know, the, the plethora of other examples that we're seeing in the market today. Um, in order to you know, prepare for when this infrastructure is available um, and in order to help guide what this infrastructure should be, you know, industries really need to start looking at how they will um, adopt these technologies in, in the best way. You know, we're seeing a huge amount of, of um, Really amazing work being done around, you know, building metaverse experiences. However, many of them today are still built upon, you know, that traditional infrastructure that I've been talking about around, you know, cloud gaming or gaming platforms, which are great for a particular use case of, of metaverse experience. Um, however, you know, expanding beyond that, when you're creating 3D worlds and you're creating, you know, uh, an increased amount of, of digital twin or 3D objects, having those represented in a way where they can be deployed and interacted with and manipulated by many different applications or many different sources of data will be really important for businesses to, to understand. And this is one of the reasons why we're so supportive of um, organizations like the the metaverse standards forum um as well as you know interconnecting the the ideas that are being discussed there with groups like chronos and and the other sort of uh, 3d standards and and 3d computing um industry bodies that that nvidia is is uh, honored to be a part of and and in some cases lead um because the interoperability of these different platforms and different environments is will be the enabler to connect these different worlds um you know and we're seeing some great work starting to happen in being able to migrate things like avatars from one platform to another but being able to then migrate entire you know uh, digital twins of cities or digital twins of of um industrial uh, manufacturing plants from from one experience to another and maintaining the detail maintaining the complexity of those uh, models and those operational uh, digital twins will be hugely important to realize 
um, the the full uh, potential for many different organizations. And I'd, I'd suggest that that goes from from all of the different consumer experiences that people are, are building today, all the way through to the largest industrial use cases. Um, being able to to build and create content and and represent IP in one particular way, and then have that um, uh, propagate through many different types of experience, will will really lead to you know the realization of of um, of some of these experiences in in ways that we're we're really you know talking about as as visionary perspectives today. Um, so I think yeah to to summarize some of this you know the the computing infrastructure today is really still designed and built upon at scale for for the two D internet and for the the transmission and the computing of of data um, at a, an industrial scale and and mostly 2D from a consumer point of view, how we interact with the internet today. The next generation of this will, will need the to take a lot of cues from how cloud gaming systems have been built in the past and scaling those things out all the way down to, to edge to connect uh, individuals and, uh, and, and then all the way through to core data centers and, and the hyperscaler cloud platforms to enable the mass computing of, of content as well as the, the delivery of, of high fidelity, low latency content to, to individuals. Um, and businesses need to, you know, as I mentioned just now, the, 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 the way forward for them in creating, owning and managing their, their 3D ecosystems in, in ways that allow them to take advantage of, of multiple uh, potential delivery formats, multiple potential delivery platforms, um, and maintain a, a level of um, consistency across all of their 3D content. NVIDIA's core uh, acceleration tools um, for hardware and software have been at the, the center of you know, 3D graphics computing for many years now. And, and in the last five to 10 years, you know, we have been developing tools and platforms to enable the computing infrastructure at scale, as well as the software platforms for people to build metaverse experiences and interactive digital twins. Um, our Omniverse ecosystem now not only includes the software layers to enable the creation and the management of these systems, but also a, a new hardware paradigm that we, we call OVX, which is a combination of the, the best of NVIDIA as well as the best of many of our technology uh, server and storage partners to enable the computing infrastructure um, sort of outline of, of how we see the requirements being in the future for computing both the AI, the machine learning, and the 3D experiences of these massive metaverse platforms and virtual worlds, uh, enabling them to be interconnected in ways that previous computing platforms didn't allow um, in order to drive the scale that will be required for these infrastructures. The Omniverse software platform you know, is built upon um, open standards for representing 3D, um, which will allow businesses to you know, create and, and maintain their uh, virtual worlds in a way to bring them into many different platforms uh, with ease in a way that hasn't been possible before as well.
Corp. I'm part of Accenture's technology strategy and advisory practice, and I'm going to talk a little bit today about the technologies underpinning the metaverse. Over the next few minutes or so, I'm going to touch on some of the key concepts about the metaverse, the technologies that underpin it, how it's evolving, and the trends we're seeing in terms of being able to create, shape, work, and live in those different environments. So first, what is the metaverse? There are lots of different definitions about the metaverse on the internet and being um, presented by different organisations and people. At Accenture, we define it as an evolution of the internet that enables us to move beyond browsing and to participating or living or inhabiting a persistent shared experience. Um, and that experience is one that spans the physical world um, and the digital or virtual worlds, whether in part or, or more complete. And we see this as a continuum um, that spans both the spectrum of digitally enhanced worlds, realities and businesses that exist within it. And we see it as incredibly revolutionary uh, in terms of how we're going to live, work um, and operate in those different environments between the physical and the virtual in the next decade or so. And as, we, as the next evolution of the internet, the metaverse is going to be a continuing evolving set of capabilities, tools, technologies and experiences. And just as the internet evolved, we see this covering places, people, ownership and things. And so what does that really mean? We think there are four dimensions, put quite simply, in terms of the metaverse. First, it's a place where it is no different really to somewhere where you might live or work today or, or your favourite place to, to go with friends. It's also a population, so a, a group of people who you interact with um, and socialise with uh, in, a, in a really dynamic way. It also involves property, so that's just taking it to the next logical level of owning property in the physical world. You'll own things in the virtual world as well, whether that happens to be a picture or a t-shirt or indeed something else. And finally, it's portable. And this is one of the most important factors in that it sees assets move from one dimension to another, whether that's between different types of virtual worlds or just a transaction of, of, of an asset like a non-fungible token for an item. So secondly, I wanted to touch on how we access the metaverse. And there are lots of different ways in which we can access the metaverse through different technology types. These include augmented reality. So that's where there's a real world which is enhanced by 3D digital objects which are overlaid. That might be something like a Snapchat filter or a Pokemon Go example. Mixed reality, which blends those, those real and digital world environments where users can then inter interact with each other. Virtual world, virtual reality, which are for, uh, fully immersive. 3D worlds. That includes things like Roblox and Minecraft, where digital environments and, op and objects occupy 3D worlds. And finally, sensory perception. So that's where virtual reality stimulates two or more of our senses, whether that's sound, sight or touch, um, making that virtual reality experience much more real. And so what makes a metaverse? I've talked about some of the dimensions of this already, but really the different components that you see in the diagram on this slide. So the, the community, the physical place, the identity of people who, who uh, live, experience and interact in that environment is creating businesses to, to battle and compete for how they gain how they gain customers, how they work and how, how do they reinvent themselves and who will have that over, overarching presence or influence, whether that's for selling products, whether that's for uh, just gaining that experience and, and growing customer base. 
And this is why we talk about the metaverse continuum and that battleground that continues to evolve just as the technology and the experiences evolve with it. And so whilst I've talked a little bit about technology, I'm going to touch a little bit more on the other dimensions of, of the metaverse environment, including the, the immersive nature of it. So I've talked, as I said, about some of those access tools, the different technologies like augmented reality and mixed reality, but there's also that fundamental human dimension. So how can humans interact and experience that environment? And on the far right hand side, how can, the, how can they use virtual assets, whether that's a non-fungible token or a cryptocurrency that they use? And what are the constructs that we need to sit behind that to enable the, them to experience and enhance the benefit they get from living or working or just playing in that environment. And some of those things can really be brought to life with some of the things that we're seeing from leading companies, makeup brands, for example, giving you the chance to virtually try on makeup in a, in a virtual world, um, exploring that video game in a more immersive way, for example, on the Roblox platform or with that VR headset or that controller. And so what does that mean and how is that going to evolve going forwards? So there are a number of trends that we see in the metaverse environment space, and these cover all the different types of metaverse environments that exist, which span those gaming uh, environments that we that have existed for a while, as well as the more advanced metaverse environments like uh, like Horizon Worlds, for example. The first trend we see is is um, is on what we're calling next generation of customers, and those tend to be those digital native uh, younger generations who have grown up with that digital identity. They're very used to uh, working, playing, probably not working as much in 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 an immersive way, and they'll transition to that metaverse experience or experiences very naturally, and they'll be it'll be very automatic to collaborate, interact and operate in that type of community as well as the physical world. We also talk about bridging worlds. So how do we, as metaverse environments evolve, create that intersection between the physical and the digital worlds? And how do they virtual worlds then proliferate? We already know, for example, that there are many uh, hundreds of different virtual type worlds that exist. Um, and where will the most dominant ones be? And how can we expect people to interact? What behaviors can we see? And if you're a business, how can you incentivize your customers more in that space? We also talk a little bit about uh, beyond the screen. So that means whilst hardware, so something like a headset, for example, is becoming smaller and lighter and, and more widely available, the technology that underpins it is also becoming more ubiquitous, like cloud, for example. And then how do we see that pivot from using phones, giving us that 2D experience, for example, to the 3D content that we can experience through virtual or immersive technology, like through a headset? There's also a separate dimension here about having an existing experience, but immersive tech uh, adds that new layer to it. So for camera technology and computer vision, having that increasingly integrated and indistinguishable digital and physical content connected. Or, for example, the growth of web AR, so that link between augmented reality, which can be launched directly from the web without the mobile phone interface. And I guess finally, to cover off some of the other trends, whilst there are a few more listed on here, the mirror world, so that mirror between the physical and the digital world, like digital twins, for example, um, as well as looking at tokenization. So how can we transact um, and, and pay for things in the digital world? And as a consequence, how can we also 
we evolve our money constructs. So the new payment constructs that we have, how can they be governed? What opportunities does that allow you as a customer? But equally, if you're a finance organization, what, what's the implication of that as well? There are many examples um, emerging for across different industry types for the metaverse. And we see we see those across every industry group. I've highlighted a few of those on this slide uh, and I'll try to call out some uh, to bring them to life. In the hospitality space, we see more and more companies looking at that try before you buy policy created in that virtual world, whether that happens to be a product or an experience. How can you redesign uh, travel uh, by looking at it from a sustainability angle and looking at what that might mean in an immersive experience? Or how can you look at it at maintaining an a building or an infrastructure or a set of organisations or shops, for example, from a digital twin perspective? If you're a finance organisation uh, or indeed a customer of one, we're seeing trends in terms of providing remote advice, experiencing immersive banking. So something like checking your, your balance or your bill or your bank statements through an AR or VR channel or indeed visiting a virtual branch, uh, providing a different type of experience to the one you might experience just through your web interface today. And from a public sector perspective, some really exciting evolutions in terms of training that can be given um, from military to healthcare to really engage and empower uh, the recipients of that. Um, and other examples such as digital diagnostics, which just provide, for example, through AR, a different way of of doing a di medical diagnosis. So is the technology ready? I think the short answer is yes and no. Much of the technology we see is in the early adopter phase, but there are signals that this is going to be rapidly progressed into the future. Whilst in the past we might have seen that wait and see type approach to see if the tech did evolve, there are three things that drive us to think this will, will not be the case for this one and it will it will continue to happen at pace. The first is our habits. Um, more and more data studies show us that more and more people are spending more time online, more time in using immersive content and experiences. So, for example, um, that was particularly prevalent in the pandemic. Secondly, from a technology point of view, we see a growth in the sales of headsets and other immersive tech enablers, for example, like Oculus headsets. And third, from an enterprise business point of view, more and more organisations are looking at the digital world and thinking about how they reinvent themselves and how they adapt to be able to operate in those, whether that's in the music industry and, and doing concerts in the virtual world um, or building your brand in a different way. So whilst the tech includes cloud, extended reality, blockchain, IoT, it's not really the only consideration with metaverse and how that's going to evolve. It's also about that human and that enterprise dimension. It's not just a technology evolution. And that leads us to talking about the responsible metaverse. So how can we create, create and experience a metaverse which is responsible? And that covers a number of trust and human dimensions. Collectively, they require us to look at what is the transformation required? What is the technology underpinning them? What are the regulations, policies, governance, standards, considerations? And that includes things like security and privacy. So how can we make sure that an individual's privacy is protected, but also if you're a business, 
the data is protected from that perspective as well. How can NFTs or fungible token platforms operate? How can we consider the inclusion and diversity perspectives to make sure that there is no implicit bias built into metaverse environments? And how can we protect people's mental health um, and respect uh, the diversity aspects of, of all the users of the metaverse as well? And finally, sustainability. There's such an opportunity in the metaverse to look at renewable energy sources and infrastructure to really empower and enable that going forward. Hello everyone, my name's Ian Taylor and I am the Head of Crypto and Digital Assets at KPMG UK. It's my pleasure today to be part of your mini-series. Today I'm going to talk to you about crypto or digital assets um, in the context of the UK. Um, I will give you a brief overview of how the technology works and what, what we're seeing um, in the marketplace as the main use cases for this new innovative industry. Okay, so what is a blockchain? What is DLT? And what are the crypto assets that are minted on the technology? So DLT stands for a distributed ledger technology. Uh, this concept has been around for quite a few years um, and in its simplest form is a way to improve security. So you can imagine in a world where you just have all your data stored on one server in one location, you're exposed to risks such as fire, damage, theft, loss, um, and destruction of that data. So distributing uh, data has been around for a long time to protect against you know, critical systems going down, for example. Blockchain is a form of DLT. Um, and how a blockchain works. In, in effect, it's a ledger, a ledger of transactional data. Um, and as the, the name suggests, um, these, uh, the transaction data is stored in a block um, and that block is appended to a chain. Um, and the idea is that because in most cases, well, public blockchains um, are decentralized and what that means is that the um, access and the information on these public blockchains is accessible to anyone in the world at any time. And anyone can participate in um, running a blockchain. Now, the way a blockchain works is it's based on a number of principles. Um, cryptographic uh, protections are embedded into the protocol. Also, economic um, game theory is embedded into the protocol. By, by that, I mean, how do you incentivize people to participate in this public network or this system? Um, and then also, um, how do you yeah, reward people for providing resource and capital into the system? And that's where we come on to crypto assets that are native or minted or born on, on a blockchain. Um, so how a blockchain works is there are a group of people that are known as block producers or miners that you might have heard of uh, in the Bitcoin blockchain will provide capital in the form of compute power. So computing resource that is used to solve um, a cryptographic puzzle 
Um, and it's embraced by all of the people providing this compute power. And there's yeah, hundreds of um, entities around the globe that are providing the resource, which is in effect the security to the blockchain. Um, and the one that wins the race, you know, solves this cryptographic mathematical puzzle, um, which is based in cryptography, um, wins a reward. And so the reward is a payment, a token that's native to that blockchain and the Bitcoin blockchain. The block producer that wins the race receives a uh, Bitcoin um, or number of Bitcoin, uh, depending on a number of factors, um, as an incentive to provide this capital into the network. And so once, once the uh, block has been produced, it then gets appended to the previous block and this chain provides for the security that nobody can come along and kind of fork the chain, for example, or basically act nefariously. So the design allows for the security to be maintained in what is an open source public network. Okay, so what is a crypto or digital asset? So as I use the example of Bitcoin, the most well-known blockchain, but there are others. Ethereum is a blockchain, Polkadot is a blockchain, Tezos, Cosmos, Solana. These are all other blockchains that exist, but focusing on Bitcoin, what happens, as I said, once the block is produced, the reward is issued to the block producer or miner, and that is a token, a, a truly digitally native token that has no reference to any real world transaction or piece of information or physical asset. It is truly the money of the internet. And so this Bitcoin was designed about 13 years ago as a peer-to-peer, -peer, truly trustless, decentralized payments system. Um, and so what we've had over the last 10 years is many different um, iterations of um, blockchains. And so let's talk through this uh, particular slide, which categorizes how we see the different crypto assets at the moment. And this is in these categories are generally agreed upon, not just in the UK, but across the globe. So a payment or exchange token. This is a token that is intended to be a medium of exchange and store of wealth. The best example there is Bitcoin. And in the UK, these are unregulated at the moment. Uh, the next category is an asset-backed token. So you may well have heard of a stable coin, uh, such as USDC or Tether. This token effectively has something backing it. So Generally, with a stablecoin, the, the most popular ones are backed with fiat currency. So if you give um, over one pound to the um, entity that's running this particular uh, stablecoin, then you will get a digital token that represents that one pound. Also, these uh, tokens can be backed by gold, by any real world asset. In fact, they can be backed by um, other crypto assets that are um, not uh, physical in nature. Then the next category, they, they will soon be regulated, stable coins in the UK, um, in the financial markets uh, service bill, stable coins, issuers will be regulated similar to e-money institutions when that comes into uh, policy uh, later in 2023. 
So the third category, utility tokens. These are unregulated. And as the name says, this token provides a future utility. A good example is uh, XRP, um, which is a cross-border token that's um, native to the uh, Ripple blockchain that is looks to solve such um, issues as uh, expensive remittance payments across borders. A security token, the fourth category, these are regulated and these uh, represent a real-world asset or um, a real-world something, for example, um, a bond, a digital bond that's issued on a blockchain could be a security token or a mutual fund or a USIT that um, is tokenized on a uh, blockchain and then transferred into a crypto asset. They are regulated in the same way that any traditional security would be regulated through FISBA or MIFID in the UK. Now, a CBDC is a central bank digital currency. There are lots of um, research papers and proof of concepts in play across central banks all over the world. Um, and the Bank of International Settlements is running a lot of pilot schemes where a lot of KPFG's clients are involved in to sort of test how this will work in practice in the UK economy and globally. And then the final category is NFTs or non-fungible tokens. This is a new uh, class of crypto asset and as the name suggests, means that each token is different from every other one. And that token could be um, a representation of digital art. It could be um, a, an item in a blockchain game, such as a, a weapon um, or an outfit. You know, it could also represent access and rights to something. For example, if you um, are a football fan, you can buy an NFT that confers a whole host of rights to you as a fan of that particular football club. Okay. And here we have our final slide just for today's mini series. Um, what are the digital asset use cases we see today? Well, at KPMG, we're working with a whole host of companies, both in traditional finance and across other sectors, whether it be technology, retail. We're also working with a lot of um, new, innovative crypto and blockchain businesses. So the use cases we see is the first use case is Bitcoin and other crypto assets as a new asset class. So an alternative asset to putting your portfolio. And we've seen a real large increase in adoption um, for not just retail, but also institutions allocating some of their portfolio to invest in crypto assets. Next use case is tokenization. I mentioned this before. So this is where um, an organization financial services will want to, to tokenize or represent, say, gold or any other asset um, using crypto assets on a blockchain. And the benefit here is twofold. One, efficiencies. Um, you can remove a whole host of uh, friction that exists in financial market infrastructures, such as pre-trade settlement, post-trade settlement. And what you can do is automate a lot of processes, do away with some of the back office functions that exist. And also, you know, one of the real benefits is real-time settlement or T0. You don't have to wait two days for the settlement of um, crypto assets and blockchains um, like you do in traditional finance, such as 
foreign exchange or equities, you have to wait for two days for the actual cash to move and the asset to 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 be with you or you know or with your intermediary that's holding that for you. Um, DeFi and automation. DeFi stands for decentralized finance. And what we've seen in the last few years is a lot of development and innovation around decentral financial products. So these are called dApps or decentralized applications where they provide financial services such as lending, borrowing, for example, um, and marketplaces, exchanges that are run automatically. Um, it's all software that sits on the um, base layer or the blockchain, the layer one in the tech stack that function and automa automatically um, using such uh, innovation as smart contracts. And smart contracts are a set of code that live on the blockchain that self-execute when certain um, uh, variables have um, been uh, achieved. And then payments is the fourth use case that I will mention during this mini series where we're starting to see merchants accept um, crypto payments uh, for purchase of goods and services, mainly stable coins, um, because quite a lot of crypto assets are volatile. Uh, the Bitcoin price in November was $60,000 and today is about $20,000. So what we're seeing is merchants are accepting payments in a stable coin um, for two real beneficial reasons is one the cost um, is much less than accepting a credit card payment credit card fees are over two percent um, and accepting stablecoin can be less than you know one percent depending on the service provider and also this real-time settlement that i mentioned there's no track liquidity using a stablecoin as a method of payment so for example on a long bank holiday weekend merchant might sell a service but not get paid until the following Monday. Um, you know, that's four days on an Easter bank holiday weekend. But if you're using um, blockchain and crypto as a means of settlement, you get that liquidity immediately. It's 24-7, 365 days a year because these services operate automatically using software and uh, the underpinning technology. Okay, and as we've talked about these four main use cases that we see today, now let's move on to the metaverse or Web3. Now, these two terms are being used interchangeably, um, and we're just starting to see really large interest um, and adoption from all sectors, not just financial services, across uh, many areas. Um, and so what we know is that the technology, blockchain, DLT, and the native crypto assets that are born or minted on the blockchain are facilitating this new exciting area called the metaverse or Web3. Now, what is this? Well, <laughs> it's quite hard to define at the moment because it's being developed both figuratively and literally. But what I can tell you is, you know, a nice way that it was explained to me a while ago was if you imagine the first iteration of the web, which was self self owned, um, it was, if you like, the ability to uh, read um, on the uh, Internet. So the protocol uh, to allow for the sharing of, of knowledge and data across a public network. So you could, you know, read 
the data on the first iteration. And then as we move forward to the second iteration, which is largely due to infrastructure development, such as increased data through the pipes, such as fiber optic, and also the move to third generation. So we could not just send voice data over the airways, but we could now send um, uh, other forms of data allowed for people to come along and build applications on the um, underlying infrastructure that have been built. So Web2 is about applications such as social media, such as streaming services that we uh, all know and love, such as Facebook, Netflix, and so on. And now Web3 is the next iteration. So if Web1 is read, Web2 is read and write because you can write applications onto the base layer. Web3 is read, write, and own. So this ownership model um, is what the promise of decentralization is. The fact that anyone can participate in these networks, the fact that you can take ownership, and the ownership is the crypto asset that is born or minted on the blockchain. And so NFTs are part of this, and we see people engaging in communities um, that are being built where you can buy a piece of land in a you know, virtual land in the metaverse and within that piece of land you can do a whole host of things like create um, a persona for yourself um, what we're seeing quite a lot of the applications at the moment are in financial services for example you know metaverse branches where you can go and interact um, in a virtual store using um, virtual reality or augmented reality uh, products and services. Also within the world of uh, luxury brands, we're starting to see um, online shopping places, well, not online shopping places, actually virtual shopping places where you can go into a store, um, you can use, using virtual reality, you can try products, like a handbag, for example, a luxury handbag, you can see what it looks like on your avatar and your avatar has exactly your own measurements. You can change the types of clothes you're wearing to test the uh, the colors and the style. So these are some of the innovative developments we're starting to see in this new ecosystem. And one thing that we're, we're working with our clients with at the moment is to educate, upskill and understand what the risks are with connecting a digital wallet to one of these platforms that are operating in the Web3 space. But really, we're moving into this new iteration where we're living our lives much more digitally, digitally than we were previously. Thank you. Hi there. Uh, my name's Sarah Cameron. I'm a legal director at Pinson Masons, the international law firm, and I have a particular focus on data, AI, and other emerging technologies. And with me is my colleague Atta Eger, who is principal solutions architect uh, at Pinson Masons. Uh, who's worked with AI for a long time and has a keen interest in the metaverse. So this is one of Tech UK's mini series on the technologies underpinning the metaverse. And uh, today, for this one, we're looking at artificial intelligence. So we'll look at the most relevant types of AI in this space and their current level of maturity and where they need to get to to reach this kind of always on immersive collaboration.
collaborative metaverse or metaverses. And we might touch on some legal points at the end if there's time. So um, as the metaverse doesn't actually really yet exist, there is no single agreed definition um, of what it is, but literally it means beyond the universe. Um, and so essentially what it is, is this link or permeability between the physical and the digital worlds, uh, enabling immersive experiences. So where people can work, learn, play, socialize, create, and so on. And, and if we click on the next slide, this, um, this is a useful diagram uh, that's on the internet. It's by a chap called John Redoff, um, and it provides a helpful visual of the layers making up the metaverse or a metaverse. Um, so you can see from infrastructure building out through the layers through to the experiential layer, and we can see how AI will play into many of the aspects across these layers. So. Um, AI will underpin, of course, um, augmented reality, virtual reality, the use of computer vision, uh, NLP, all of which are key for avatar creation um, and the surrounding immersive environments and will be central to the social interactions, um, all of which will generate enormous amounts of data which AI will then come in to interpret uh, and be used to personalize the user activities and experience and, and, and so on. So, so, so with that, Attar, coming to you as the expert, sure. um, just looking at some of these familiar aspects that, that we know and hear about now, can you, can you tell us how mature they are and where they need to go to, uh, to play into this forthcoming metaverse? Absolutely, sure. It's very interesting to see um, where we can actually take AI across the entire meta, meta stack or the metaverse stack or metaverses. And obviously, as you can see, it can be used in many different areas all the way across from infrastructure all the way across to advertisement analysis and, and all manner of different areas in between. I think the interesting part is when you actually start looking at content generation, content management. It's, it's an area that's just started some really good research. Um, there are some 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 great forays into it, but very much so, it's a it's much more of a nascent industry. It's much more uh, at the start, and I think this is probably one of the areas that, as you rightly mentioned, we're going to be looking at and up uh, uh, the ability to bring people into the metaverse and uh, and some really exciting content um, uh, from there. So to give you an example, at the moment, we currently have lots and lots of really good research papers that uh, that OpenAI open have published, as well as a number of other organizations with Google um, and various different groups like that. And essentially what they're focusing on is being able to generate images from text prompts. So yeah, as an example, I would like to create an image of um, uh, yeah, a medieval castle or something like a, you know, a Art Deco style of photograph of a, you know, a, a horse running through fields or something like that. And in and of themselves, they're fantastic examples of how you can use NLP uh, to, to generate images. But I think when you're looking at the content side of things in general, this is where things are going to become quite interesting as we move to the future. A lot of the tools that are currently in use uh, that generate um, these kind of interactive experiences, which which is using some of the some of the burgeoning AI right, character models, um, NPCs, that type of stuff. A lot of the tools are hidden behind some very very complicated workflows and uh, technology paradigms. And even though they're being simplified 
every single day, one of the problems that we have is that it still takes quite a lot of effort to create some of the content that we're actually looking at. And I do think in this regard, content is going to be king. You know, that you might have a fantastic metaverse, but if you don't have anybody in it, it's not really going to be uh, as useful as, as as we'd like to have. So with that in mind, being able to bridge the, the gap between where you currently have content, which is generated by digital artists or digital um, our workflows, uh, large multi-million multi, multi million pound studios to be able to create these experiences, there needs to be a shift left and a paradigm shift across to where we would like to go, which is much more around the, uh, the user-centric content generation. And I think this is a really interesting area where AI can really start actually adding some real value. To give you a couple of examples, uh, we're using, I've pulled some examples from DALI2, and uh, Midjourney, two interesting AI engines that essentially take this uh, text prompt and convert it into an image that can be used um, either as concept art or something along those ways. Um, when you take this kind of concept and you say, we're moving it from ideation to implementation, if you extend that further, you actually have a really, really interesting way of taking essentially somebody's um, expression, what they want to see within the virtual world, and actually make it into a virtual reality, a virtual experience. And as I said, you know, it's a very nascent industry at the moment, um, but there are some good examples that I can show you now. So, if um, if we pull up uh, the first first slide, this is something that uh, I generated myself using DALI two. It's a very interesting algorithm. Uh, sorry, it's a very interesting MI engine, which essentially allows you to type in a text prompt and generate an image from that. And as you can see, we've got an Art Deco style cat eating a cake all the way across to mythical creatures and all, all manner of diff different things like that. So from a content perspective, this is fantastic. It's not removing the digital artist from the, uh, from the equation, but what it's doing is it's empowering uh, the, the regular consumer, citizen, somebody who doesn't have the experience of using tools like Blender or Substance Painter and some of the industry leading tools uh, or Cinema 4D or something like that to generate these kind of uh, interactive experiences, it allows, them to, it allows them to actually be able to start doing this type of stuff themselves. Uh, similarly, we've got um, another example. This is from Midjourney. Uh, it's another AI platform that allows you to generate various different um, the characters in this case we've got a dragon and i think i believe that's robert downey jr <laughs> so you've got you've got some fantastic uh, ability and this is just literally off textual prompts that allows you to be able to create these these kind of images from here if you extend that into the uh, and this is this is essentially where we are at the moment you know there's lots of great research there's lots of really interesting stuff like this but obviously when you're looking at this from where we are we need to be able to bridge this into where we'd like to be which is an interactive experience essentially driven by um, either voice or natural languages to actually generate the content. So instead of using a tool like a Cinema 4D or Blender or Maya, some of these industry tools, you could empower you know, a, a teenager who wants to hang out with his friends and swap ideas about a new t-shirt he wants to get printed or something like that. You could empower uh, people who won't have the ability or the skills to use some of these complicated workflows to be able to generate these things for themselves. Um, with that, obviously, some fantastic tools. There has to be an element, and I think AI in this regard is really going to be powerful to be able to translate the what I'm thinking from a freedom of experience perspective into what I actually see. 
But obviously, as part of this, we have to be cognizant that from a content generation perspective, it's fantastic. But we have to make sure that the content moderation piece is also taken care of. And I think obviously, when you look at some of the various different um, situations we've seen in the internet over the last couple of years, you know, I think it's it's a it's safe to say. I always say the internet will find a way. So if there's a way to use it all in a good way, there'll always be people who'll be either trying to use it in a in a way that it's not designed for, or you know, potentially in a in a less than less than a stellar manner. So we have to be cognizant of that. And I think obviously with the scale of people adopting these technologies, we have to be mindful that we need to have AI tools from the moderation space as well, which I think is also going to be a really really uh, big industry and really big part of it. So Atal, just, just thinking about all those different bits that you've said, mm. in terms of going from where we are to, to, to a much more mature, evolved metaverse, yeah. are we talking about the scaling up being absolutely critical? Are we talking about user engagement at a, at a new level? Are we talking more about the adaptive task independent AI? Is it all of these that need to mature or is there one thing that needs to, to advance first? I think it's absolutely all of them. I think we are very much, you know, we've seen some fantastic work in AI with regards to uh, automation, with regards to robotics. You see all the work we're doing around self-driving cars. Those are really, really key features and key enablers for the future but when we look at the metaverse as a whole there are so many different areas that i think we need to improve to be able to get that engagement in and there are some platforms already uh like a like vr chat or uh, neos or horizon who have a lot of these abilities um in the burgeoning sense but obviously when you look at it in the grand scheme of things you know we need the ability to uh have have nlp to generate a virtual world as an example have content that is managed and and i wouldn't say policed but moderated in a similar kind of manner to make sure that it's a safe space for people of all different uh um abilities all different uh creeds all different uh perspectives to be able to feel safe and welcome in there and that's a hugely important thing in in uh in society well and that's a very well good as... point so i just mm. I'm sorry forgive me for interrupting no, no, please, i'm just please, thinking yeah, yeah. with uh, limited time it might be mm. worth just uh, my saying a couple of things be being a law firm we obviously think about the legal and ethical aspects around mm. ai and 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 this evolving uh towards uh, towards the, the metaverse that we're talking about now so just make a couple of points on on, on that um, some of the legal and ethical considerations we look at now for AI will, of course, translate through to the metaverse and perhaps be amplified given the scale and speed at which um, AI and data will be will be in play. So one aspect, data protection, will be absolutely critical um, and the core principles of fairness, lawfulness, transparency, explainability and accountability will be um, extremely um, central to this and need to be complied with. Uh, we're going to have data of unparalleled granularity um, being, being generated and the related insights, including uh, generated from biometric data and so on. Um, so there's going to be really a strong, strong governance requirement and DPIAs, uh, clear privacy notices to make sure we've got a um, data protection, data privacy by, by design. Um, then there's the whole IP discussion. We've got a long article on this on uh, Pinsent Mason's website, um, but businesses are going to need to think about um, their intellectual property rights um, being protected in the digital and physical worlds, um, needing to audit 
what those rights are, what the gaps potentially are and the unanswered questions and how they're going to enforce their rights in, in, in what will be an ever-growing uh, metaverse, metaverses environment. Competition is an issue um, around no one organization dominating, but healthy, interoperable marketplace of metaverses. And as you rightly say, Atta, the whole inclusivity and accessibility discussion, Absolutely, um, yeah. Yeah. which actually could be a positive of bringing diverse uh, communities together. Um, but, but one needs to look out for those that might need a bit of extra help. We, we don't want to be carrying through flaws, prejudices and biases from the current world into the metaverse, as the World Economic Forum said. And, and then um, a, a, a key issue for me, sustainability, um, oh, given yeah. the, gen the, the data that will be generated. So there's fantastic potential for um, artificial intelligence in the metaverse to enable education and skills, training, um, health, manufacturing, and so on. Um, but we need to keep an eye on the ethical side around data and energy consumption and try and make this a force for good. Um, so, so, so those are my key points on, on regulation. And, and um, it's an exciting space, um, one to look forward to, but, but hopefully we'll see the positive and ethical uh, dimensions coming, coming through. Um, absolutely. So, and, and I think it's, I think it's really important. One of the areas that you touched on there, which is absolutely it's a fantastic area to, to really explore is being able to give people the ability to, um, to learn in different ways, to be able to, and, and reaching out into communities that might not necessarily have had the the ability to access some of these resources and present it in a in a in a sustainable manner that in that is interactive and actually in, uh, in creates and engenders that learning experience. I think is going to be huge. Part of that obviously is being able to give the the ability to generate this content, take it away from, say, empower the citizens to be able to generate that stuff um themselves as opposed to putting it behind a, a technology or an educational uh firewall for want of a better word so lots of potential positives um, on which mm. note i'm conscious we may have exhausted our time um so thank you atta very much for for your contribution and uh thank you to tech uk no so problem I, I would like to just finish on one little thing um just as a bit of a fun fun aspect i did actually ask ai what it thought of the met as of uh the metaverse when i was doing a bit of research into this and i think it's quite interesting maybe something to, to think about um one of the areas this is a my own attempts at AI prompts some areas where I think it might be interesting when we look at the the legality and and, and stuff like that uh, around who owns intellectual property, uh, intellectual property rights and that. But when I asked AI what it thought of, what, draw me what it thinks of the metaverse, this was the result. So on the left-hand side, we have obviously somebody enjoying the experience from a VR perspective. On the right-hand side, you have a, an esoteric we don't know what it could be. And I think it's a really interesting example. I don't even think AI knows where we're going to end up, which I think is, you know, it's a really interesting and really exciting place to be at the moment. And that's probably a good place to end. Thanks so much, Etta. <laughs>